Hello, everybody. As one of the pastors of Forest Hill Church, I am so glad and grateful that you have joined us engaging in worship as well as what God will say to us during these next several minutes. A lot has been affecting us, especially as our country is kind of slowly, cautiously reopening, kind of re-entering, and so that's affecting us. But also this past week, many of us have been affected by the senseless death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. I'm going to address that particular aspect a little bit later on in this message. But I want to start off with an acknowledgement, even from things like that or other things in our life, serious or kind of silly, that we all have pet peeves, you know. There are those annoyances, those nuisance things that aggravate us, that frustrate us, that, that just make us go crazy of the things that people might do. We all have pet peeves. What are yours? No pointing, especially if the pet peeve happens to be in the room with you. But I went on the internet and took a look at the pet peeves that people have. Pet peeves are such things as people who chew with their mouth open, making the sounds of their chewing while their mouth is open. Uh, People who do not wash their hands after they've used the restroom. People who throw trash out of their car window while they're driving. People who drive too close. Those are pet peeves. Those are the kinds of things that infuriate us. People who walk too close beside us. People who are in our space. People who talk out loud during the movies. That's a major pet peeve of mine as well, too. People who interrupt you while you're talking. Pushy vegans. That was one of the things I found. As well as dropped cell phone connections. That's probably right now one of my major pet peeves. I am in the middle of probably either receiving or, or transmitting the most incredible pieces of wisdom that can bless the socks off the person, and all of a sudden there's no response because the connection is gone dead, infuriating, and it happens in the weirdest places at the weirdest times. Have you ever considered that Jesus Christ also has pet peeves? He's got some things that really rile him up. As a matter of fact, we might say this about the pet peeves of Jesus Christ, that he is peeved, and peeved again is this sense of grief, this sense of indignation about something that's going on. Jesus is peeved when there are barriers that prevent or disrupt people seeking to be connected with him and his community. You want to get Jesus upset? Get in the way of people being willing and desiring to have connections with Jesus Christ and his community. We see it, especially in chapter 10 of Mark, as we've been going through the gospel of Mark. Chapter 10 of Mark, when the disciples with probably really good intentions were kind of shooing away children that wanted to get close to Jesus. And Jesus basically, it says that he became peeved or he became indignant, angry. And he said, let the children come and do not get between me and them. Don't stop them because the kingdom is full of children and people with spirits like these. In the previous chapter, chapter 9, Jesus says that for those who would actually cause someone to sin, it would be better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the deepest sea rather than to face the response and the justice of Jesus. That's kind of harsh. He is peeved about any barrier that prevents or disrupts people from their connections to God and to the community. Last week, as we were walking through this trade-up series, this idea that we want to be able to make sure that people have a way of being able to trade up for the dynamic life that God has for them, and we're looking at that life through the life of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about the internal barriers, those internal barriers that oppose the flow of dynamic life in us, and I also asked you to think about the one thing. What is the one thing that stands in the way that opposes the flow of dynamic life in your life? And folks, some of you, both in the chat and your texting, we looked at some of those things and some of you were amazingly courageous and transparent in the things that you said, the things that you confessed. 
It was amazing. And as a staff, pastoral staff, we're praying for you about those things. As I read some of those confessions, I found myself in them as well. Thank you for your transparency in doing that. Today, we're dealing with the external barriers, external barriers that prevent the connection of other people to God. We're taking a look at this from the passage in Mark chapter 11, as we're continuing in this biography of Jesus' life through the pen of Mark, but through the eyes of Peter, disciples of Jesus Christ, to help us understand what this particular barrier is. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. It's basically religious tradition. We'll take a look. Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin with verse 15. And as is our habit, as is our practice, as is our privilege, in light of the fact of The reverence we have for the Word of God and its author, I ask you, wherever you are, to stand. And let's take a look at this passage from Mark chapter 11. Here's what it says. Jesus and the disciples came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it, started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. You may be seated. As we move into this passage, the tendency for us to think that Jesus showed up, saw what happened, and just went off. I want to give you a different context of what took place so you can understand that what Jesus did on this day at that time was actually a premeditated act based on something that took place the day before. As a matter of fact, this particular day that Jesus got angry and got peeved in the temple was Monday of Holy Week. In other words, in a few days... Jesus was going to be abandoned, betrayed, handed over to evil, sinful men. He was going to be tortured, brutally beaten, and then crucified for the sins of the world. And then he would rise again three days later. Let's never forget to make sure that that's a part of it. His resurrection would also come during that week. But if this is Monday, that he's in the temple, then what took place on Sunday the day before? It was Palm Sunday. It was a day that Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem amid the palm branches and cries of people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, help us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A grand moment for Jesus entering into Jerusalem. One of the Gospels also records that Jesus later on, he looked over Jerusalem and he wept. He was grieved because of their spiritual hardness and the corruption that was going on. But here's what happens. Before he goes to Bethany, which is about 1.7 miles away, which he's going to retire to the home of his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Something happens with Jesus in the temple. As a matter of fact, we find this in verse 11. Here's what it says. Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What was it that Jesus saw exactly? What was it that he saw? Well, to be able to understand that, to explain why he did what he did, let's get a context of what was going on at the temple. It turns out at this particular point that Herod, the odious King Herod, had built this temple, this amazing, beautiful, magnificent temple for the Jews to be able to conduct their worship experiences and especially the special ceremonies. And the temple was constructed in a way that there were certain levels, progressive levels of connection to God as you go from the outside to the very inside where the Holy of Holies is, where the presence of God is. The first level was called 
the court of the Gentiles. That was a place where everybody, men, women, Jew, Gentile, would walk into that court, but only Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, they could not proceed any further. In other words, that was their place and no further for them to connect with God. That's the court of the Gentiles. The next level was the court of the women. This is for men, women, or the Jewish women to be able to go into this particular place, but the women could not go any further. That was their place where they were to connect to God. Then you've got the court of the Israelites. That's where the Israelite men, um, those who are priests, those who are not priests, that's their level. But those men, non-priests, they couldn't go any further because the next level then was the area for the Levitical priests, the court of the priests. And of those in the priestly order, that was their place. And then finally, the Holy of Holies, when only the high priest would go into that place to engage the presence of God one time a year. That's it. Court of Gentiles, Court of Women, Court of Israelites, Court of the Priests, and the Holy of Holies. There's a powerful celebration that's going on at this particular point. It's Passover. And by historians' account, it seemed as if there could be, have been as many as three to 400,000 pilgrims who were coming into Jerusalem, Jews and non-Jews, to celebrate the Passover. As a matter of fact, some historians talk about the fact that with those that are coming from outside and those who are inside, the temple could have been flooded with people, one to two million people that are there for the so the Passover celebration. Now, you and I know what kind of Charlotte goes through when we go through our big events, whether it's the, the former CIAA um, tournaments or Wells Fargo tournaments or the national conventions. Everything in the city changes, right? There's got to be adjustments for traffic, for restaurants, for hotels, for special amenities. Well, at this particular point, the temple, they've got their issues, and they're trying to figure out how to make everything happen in a way that accommodates the massive amount of people that are coming in. But especially as it applies to what's happening in the temple area. With all these people that are coming in, they're all bringing their animals for sacrifice. And you've got to make sure that your animal has no blemish. It's properly appropriate, acceptable to God for the sacrifices. And so people would raise their own animals or they'd purchase outside the temple and bring them in. And here is where the corruption and exploitation takes place. It's because people who may have traveled a long distance with the animals that they've already deemed as appropriate to God, they would get inside the temple and the priests would inspect the animals or those who served the priests would inspect the animals and find something wrong with the animals to say, nope, your animals are not acceptable. They're not good enough. You can't use these for sacrifices. But we happen to have the right kinds of appropriate animals here that you need to purchase at prices way higher than what people were paying. As a matter of fact, you've seen the passage of the doves that are mentioned. The doves were the animals that by law were allotted to the poor. They couldn't afford goats or sheep, and so doves were the cheapest, the most inexpensive animals that the poor could purchase. And so they would purchase them because they're relatively inexpensive, therefore they're numerous, they're, 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 there's a lot to be found outside the temple, and so they'd buy, the poor would buy these doves and bring them in, but these inspectors would take a look at these outside non-temple doves, and they would deem those doves as not worthy inappropriate, unacceptable, but we happen to have temple doves. And those temple doves could be sold for anywhere from 10 to 15 times higher than what they paid on the outside. You can only imagine how people felt as they brought what they thought was their best, and their best was not good enough. The exploitation of the poor. And then also you've got the fact that there's this exchange rate. You can't just simply bring the money from the outside. Your money's got to be exchanged for the temple currency. And we have people out there who are also taking advantage of the fact that those rates are exorbitant to change your money from the foreign into what's acceptable. And so again, exploitation is taking place. And then 
you've got what's happening with all these animals that are going to be sacrificed. And there's got to be a place to put them. How do you accommodate all these people and all these animals? And so there was a committee meeting. <laughs> the, the priest had a committee meeting at some particular point to decide, okay, what are we going to do with all of this? And the chief priest decided that the best place for all of this chaos with animals, with tables, with selling, with exchange rates, with haggling, with anger, with all of that, the best place to put all of that stuff, that bizarre bazaar, would be in the court of the Gentiles, the one place that the Gentiles could come to connect with God was a place that was filled with anger, resentment, exploitation, animal dung, stench, chaos. The kind of thing that if you were there, you, would, you might think, I, I came all the way for this? And we turn around not just simply with a bad taste of, of worship, but maybe with a bad taste of God in our mouth. Can you see why Jesus is angry? He saw all that Sunday. He went into the temple. It says that he looked around, he surveyed it, and then he left without saying a word. He left with an intention to return with a plan to reform what had gone corrupt. So that next morning, Monday, he gets up, he's on his way to the temple, and on his way, he's hungry, looks for a fig tree, finds a fig tree, and the fig tree is a national symbol of the nation of Israel. He sees a fig tree, there's plenty of leaves, but no fruit. And so he uses this as an illustration, and he basically curses the fig tree and says, may no one ever eat from you again. We'll come back to that in a minute. He gets to the temple, and folks, you've got to see what happens. Jesus, Monday morning, into the temple, and he goes to town, fully peeved. He goes on a holy rampage in response to the outrage of what he's seeing. He is turning over tables. He is flipping over chairs and tables. And he's sending money and doves and tempers flying. He is physically dragging these corrupt vendors out of the temple and putting them on the outside. He is standing in the way. As a matter of fact, people had begun to use the court of the Gentile as a shortcut thoroughfare to the other side of the city. They didn't care at all about the people that came to experience and encounter God. They were simply using that court as a matter of their profit and of their convenience. And Jesus had had enough, and he went at it. And then he adopts even a teaching position. He says to them, my house, interesting he says, my house. Not merely God's house, but my house. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, for all people, for Gentiles, for all ethnic groups, but you have made it a den of thieves. The word there should probably be robbers because Jesus is quoting a passage from Jeremiah. And, and thieves in the Greek are the kind of people who steal stealthily. They steal hidden. But robbers are those who steal openly and with force without any kind of compunction whatsoever. He says, that's who you are and you've made my house a den, a refuge, the home of of robbers. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, this is a syndicate crime mob in my house. Can you see why he's upset? Can you feel the pee? Because he watches these people that God loves, that God wants to connect with, and they can't connect to God in the midst of this corruption of worship. And he clears house to reform the temple to what it always was meant to be. The response 
Some of the people there, they, they're astonished. They're shocked out of their senses with what Jesus is doing. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking that there may have been Gentiles who came there and they were just so disheartened with the fact that their sacrifice was not good enough. And how in the world do I pray in a place like this that smells like this? And they may be walking away thinking, I don't know. And maybe they hear the commotion. They hear the commotion of this Jew who is going nuts with Eve, and he is throwing people out and throwing over tables, and maybe some of the Gentiles are looking at this and hearing what Jesus is saying about the house being a house for all nations, and maybe those Gentiles are thinking, finally, someone that's a champion for us, for what we need to see happen in our lives in connection with God. However, the chief priests and scribes, they get news of that, and their response, they put a head out on Jesus we got to put this person down and put him down quickly because he's cutting into our business. Their desire is not negotiation. <laughs> Their desire is elimination. They seek to kill him. That's where we're going in the story. How do we deal with this? Because we're dealing with the external barrier of religious tradition. In other words, religious tradition, which starts off initially pretty well, right? Tradition that starts off with a desire to probably help but becomes, it becomes more about being dominated by our personal preferences masquerading as kingdom priorities. It, it can become infectious, this viral infection that actually has us in wrong perceptions of God and gives people the wrong perception about who God is and the wrong way to get to him. In other words, when we become dominated by traditions, what's good for us? living by our traditions, living by the way that we want to see things done, we start interpreting God's priorities through the lens of our preferences, of comfort, of convenience, of profit. doesn't take too long before the way to God becomes corrupt and there are now barriers on the bridge that prevent people from connecting to God. You know, back in my house, I live near the 12 Mile Creek Greenway. It's a beautiful greenway. The terrain is amazing. And not too far from where I live, there's a, a swinging suspension bridge. It's amazing, right? A, a swinging sus suspension bridge. The last time I was on a bridge like that was like Grandfather Mountain. That was kind of death-defying. But as we're walking on this bridge, my dog, Max, my Siberian Husky, the sled dog who always wants to be in front, when we're on the bridge together, he's not in front. He's right beside me, just kind of really cautious walking that bridge with me. God, it's a little bit nervous. That's a beautiful, wonderful bridge. Several months ago, because of some of the storms that came through, the bridge was broken. There was some damage to the bridge and they barricaded. So we would walk to the bridge excited to get on it only to find out that this passageway that connects North and South Carolina, you walk the bridge and you go from South Carolina into North Carolina, it's barricaded and you can't travel on it. And it got me to thinking. I have seen in the church of Jesus Christ, the bridge, I have seen closures on that bridge in church. Maybe some of you have seen it as well too. I've seen where people, just because they didn't speak right, talk right, because they didn't have the correct socioeconomic status, because they didn't have the proper educational status, because they didn't support the right political party and platforms, they were snubbed, they were disregarded, they were ignored, they were barred from being able to enter into a place where they could connect with God and one another. I've seen that happen because people didn't look the same way. Folks, I remember years ago when in college, one of my white friends was visited by 
deacons from the white church who came to the college to tell my white friend who had invited some of his black friends to that church. They came and told him, please do not bring your black friends to our church anymore. <laughs> I, I don't understand. And then when I reflect on what took place this past week in Minneapolis, and I saw the video, and I saw George Floyd pinned under the knee of callous indifference, begging for the basic human right of air. And it was painful. It was peeving. And I know full well that, you know, they're... they're We've made some strides in the area of racial reconciliation in a lot of ways, but I don't know that the family of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery would feel the same way that there have been strides made, especially when they've lost loved ones to senseless, callous indifference and violence. I want you to understand, I am not surprised by the depths to which sin can infect the hearts of people that are out there. I don't know what was in that officer's heart, but when I just the look of what I saw of indifference. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the answer and the solution will not come from government. It will not. It can't, because government can't legislate hearts. That the greatest weapon that we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ that addresses the problem of sin in all of its disgusting hues. And expressions. It is what Jesus Christ has done, and that's got to be the, the weapon that we always use of, of grace and truth and a desire for us to pursue justice and compassion no matter what. That we become, and here's the thing listen to me. We're family. I am proud to belong to Forest Hill Church. I have experienced, I have witnessed, I have seen such extravagant love being expressed by all kinds of people. I've been the recipient of grace and love and support by so many people. We're family. This is family. Hear me carefully. If we are going to be bridge builders, we must become intolerant to any barrier that prevents people from connecting to God who loves people and connecting to the community. We can't tolerate. We can't simply just turn away. We, look, we can't expect the government and our public servants out there to do what we are not willing to do in here. Jesus didn't take this to Rome. He started with his house. And so I'm saying to the people of, of God, the family, my family, it starts with us. We must become intolerant with any barrier that prevents people from being connected to God and his community, to God and his people. Because this is a house of prayer for all people. This is a bridge. We, we need to make sure that whenever people look at us, whether it's when we gather or when we're not, when we're scattered, we need to be able to declare the bridge is always open. 
in such a way that people find Christ with us, among us, and through that we can impact our world for Jesus Christ. I'm saying this to my family. Those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, we've got to be different. We've got to be better. So I want to offer some suggestions as far as how do we go about removing the barrier. One of the things I would suggest is this. If comfort, convenience, complacency can corrupt traditions, then we need to refuse to be comfortable, especially in the relationships with people who are not like us. We need to stop seeking comfort for people who are just like us or people who like us and have the courage to move into those places where we actually include in our lives people who are different, people who have a different story, people who bring a larger, more fuller perspective of the grace and the goodness of God to sit down, to have the conversations, and to begin to feel. As a matter of fact, it's, it's been said that one of the most dangerous prayers that we can pray is, God, grieve us, I mean, uh, grieve our hearts for what grieves yours. How about this? God, peeve our hearts for what peeves yours. And one of the ways we do that is to take some time to listen, to hear, to empathize, and to stand with. It's not enough simply for a church leadership to be diverse. And that's one of the things that I'm so grateful about Forest Hill is we want to be able to move forward in being the kind of community that's diverse, but from top to bottom and from all the sides. The vision is that in every aspect of Forest Hill, and we want to get there in every aspect of Forest Hill Church, that there is a diversity of people who are seeking the same God and experiencing the same dynamic life to the point to where we will stand together even decrying the things that are taking place in public because it is no longer appropriate for human beings and it's no longer appropriate for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We stand together against any barrier inside or outside the church that prevents people from connecting to God in Jesus Christ. One of the books, one of the resources that has been a powerful one for me for a couple of years has been the book written by John M. Perkins. It's called One Blood. It's actually a book that's been titled as uh, an altar call for repentance and reconciliation. And John Perkins basically says that the hope of the world in the church is first for a reconciled church. The white church, the black church, the Latin church, the Asian church, that the church of Jesus Christ, if we're going to infect our culture with the dynamic life of Christ, that infection has to happen with us, and we've got to do more of being able to come together and be one blood together. So my suggestion is to take a look at that particular resource because not only has it got incredible material from this civil rights activist and this spiritual man of God, but it also has questions to engage in discussions, which many of us did a couple of years ago in interracial, diverse groups, which was amazing. But here's something else to think about. I know, by the way, I can't wait to meet in person. I mean, this has been okay, this has been good, but I miss being in person, as many of you do as well, too. Can't wait, and I know over the next several weeks, Forest Hill Church will be kind of revealing our plan of how we want to carefully, cautiously, but definitely Bring people back together in a way that is most effective but also absolutely safe. Get ready for that. But here's something that I keep hearing, not only from our folks but all over, is that people can't wait, Christians, to get back to normal. We can't wait to get back to the way things used to be, the way things were. We can't wait to get back to normal. Normal for who? Normal for who? Folks, normal was never good for everybody. 
And as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot be satisfied with normal for a few. We've got to go for what is good from God for all. So personally, I don't want to go back to things the way they were. I want better. I want to be better. I want to experience better. I want us to experience the power and the dynamic life of Christ. I had the opportunity of being able to ask some of the experts in our church in connecting people with God, and I asked them the question, hey, what are some of the personal preferences that are barriers for people being able to connect to God? And some of the things that they said was, you know, sometimes our language, sometimes the words that we use is kind of insider language. Uh, sometimes people are more, they see us for more for what we are against than what we're for. That sometimes the bar is set so high to get into the church higher than the bar even to come to Jesus. But the thing that I think I got the most that, that also kind of hit me was that the majority of people in church are motivated by, what do I get out of it? What am I going to get out of church today? which obviously allows us to be critical of music, of temperature, of color, of sermons, of people, of coffee, of all those kinds of things, because we're thinking only from the perspective of what's in it for me. Folks, the question is not that. The question is, what will God get out of me today? What will the world get out of me today because of my worship? I'm so grateful for my friend, Brandon Garland. He is also helping me with my messages as well. We're doing this together. And one of the questions that he said is, do you suppose that maybe this particular period, God is, being, is giving the church a wake-up call into how we should be a church for this and the next generation? He's absolutely right. And so that's the challenge. As a matter of fact, we take a look at Jesus, what, what happens that's, that day after the temple that Jesus is leaving. And what happens when he leaves, and they're going by the same, with the same cursed fig tree. And the disciples are looking at it, and they make note, Mark does, that the tree has now completely withered from the roots. Withered from the roots. And Jesus says to them, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray for and ask for, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Those kinds of prayers that mirror the heart of God, his priorities, you'll have it. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you for your wrongdoing. If we're going to see those mountains move, those barriers removed that keep people from being able to be connected with God, to keep us from experiencing the flow of the dynamic life in Jesus Christ, then Jesus basically says, trust and rely completely in God. It's faith. Trust completely and rely, not your personal preferences, not your personal priorities. Rely in Christ. Rely in God. Number two, prayer. That involves a degree of humility to ask God not just for what we want, but to ask God for what he wants. For the years as we're praying, as we're living, to make sure that as those who are forgiven, we are forgiving so that there are no barriers of bitterness, resentment against one another, especially for the fact that Jesus Christ would in a few days from that rampage give his life on a cross to destroy the barriers that separate us from God. Church, family, we must be a part of making sure that as one, we are doing the same thing 
in Jesus' name to destroy all barriers to God. Faith, prayer, mercy, forgiveness. That's the heart of worship, isn't it? That's the heart of how we respond to a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve. So that in all that we do, in all that we are, it is all about him. Let's live in such a way that people know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the bridge is always open. The worship team is going to sing a song, kind of an old song, but a powerful song, especially the way that it's done. I encourage you to sing along, but I also encourage you to pay attention to the lyrics because it reflects the heart of Christ as it needs to be said and established in our own heart. Let me pray for us before we engage in this response of worship. Father in heaven, I pray that you would forgive us, that you would set us free from the ways that we have set up personal preferences and comforts as barriers that keep people that disregard the need for people to be connected with you. Set us free to be the bridges that reflect the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we as your church also be infectious with the gospel to set people in our world, our culture, free from the deadly contagion of separation from you because of sin. Help us with our whole heart to reflect your holy heart, to live your life through ours for your glory. In Jesus' name.